Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. What's up, guys? This is such an interesting episode with Mr. Stephen Hayes, and we really just get into the strata of how he brought ninjutsu into the West. Really cool, really interesting story. Quite honored to have Mr. Hayes lend us his time. Please do subscribe to our YouTube channel. Follow us on Twitter at TheHumanXP. We also have a call-in number. It's 586-89-HUMAN. Please use it. Give us a call. Leave us a voicemail. We would really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for listening. The human experience is entering the shadows of Iga as we explore ninjutsu with my guest, Mr. Stephen Hayes. Mr. Hayes, thank you so much for being here, sir. It's an honor. It's great to be here. So, Mr. Hayes, if you could briefly tell our audience who you are and what you do for those that don't already know, that would help to preface this conversation. Well, in a nutshell, in the 1970s, I went to Japan to find the last training hall of the ninja. This is before there were turtles or anything else like that, you know, and uh, I was the first American to uh, become an actual disciple of the Grandmaster there. And uh, for several decades, I uh, stayed in Japan, went back and forth from America. It was a very different martial art from the 1980s. The uh, idea of being a protector as opposed to uh, you know, being uh, a champion, somebody who fights for his own name uh, very different. And uh, I developed uh, from mid-1990s a modern uh, version of the ninja fighting art. Uh, I call it Toshindo. And uh, I've been promoting that uh, since the mid-1990s. And here we are 20 years later. Uh, I was uh, inducted into the Black Belt Hall of Fame in 1985. Um, I'll get the Martial Art Industry Association Lifetime Achievement Award this uh, July. Um, wrapping up a career here. <laughs> Very interesting. I'd like to get more into, I mean, Black Belt Magazine calls you a legend, one of the most 10 influential martial arts masters alive in the world today. If you could just kind of go into more of your st story about how you got to Japan and met Hatsumi Sensei, I think that would be interesting. Well, um, got to travel back, you know, almost 40 years to uh, a time when Hatsumi Sensei was uh, 
relatively young guy in his early 40s. His teacher, Takamatsu Sensei, uh, had just died. Now, Takamatsu was the guy from the 1800s. Um, he witnessed a lot of radical change in uh, Japanese culture, uh, went through the war, um, and uh, had found in Hatsumi Sensei uh, a worthy heir. And so he had just finished transmitting all of this ancient uh, cryptic lore and had died in his 80s. I arrived on the scene. Um, there were 15 people training in the uh, dojo at that time. You know, it's kind of funny to think uh, now when you look at uh, oh, thousands and thousands of people around the world involved in this, but there were 15 people and uh, I was the uh, non-Japanese. Uh, and I was amazed that they allowed me to train. Um, they were very welcoming, um, brought me right into the, the training hall. Uh, training was brutal, um, very, very uh, rough, uh, rougher than uh, I was used to. Um, later I found out, <laughs> you know, I was so honored that they would allow me to train with them. Uh, Years later, my my Japanese wife was talking with one of the Japanese seniors, and you know she had expressed that uh, you know I was honored that they had accepted me. And you know, he looks at her and he says, "Oh," he says, "Is that what he thought happened?" <laughs> she said, uh, "What do you mean?" "Oh no, we thought he was a big guy from America." We'd try all the techniques out on him. He'd get sick of us after about a week and want to go back home, and we could uh, continue on with our training. Uh, he just never went home. <laughs> <laughs> so I was, uh, I guess, supposed to be discouraged. But you know what I learned there was so different from anything I had encountered in the U.S., and it just steeped my uh, desire. Um, no matter how rough or uh, discouraging it was, I was determined uh, that I was going to learn this. I was going to get this. I was going to be the uh, the ninja martial art. Yeah, yeah, very very interesting. In in your book, I'm not sure which one. Uh, there. I think, I mean, didn't you write to Hatsumi Sensei and there was kind of no reply and you just showed up in Japan? <laughs> yeah, this is, you know, way before the internet or emails or anything like that. And I managed to find an address. I just sent a letter to Masaki Hatsumi in Noda City. And uh, I sent several letters, actually. I think three. Didn't get any reply. Um, but it just, you know, I was obsessed. Uh, I had to do it and I got there and they were very welcoming, um, for the, uh, <laughs> you know, for the, uh, reasons I just went into. And, uh, I said, Oh, 
didn't you uh, get a letter from me? Oh, yeah, yeah, we got three letters from you. And uh, Atsumi-sensei said uh, he knew you were coming over, so there was no <laughs> need to reply. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, so uh, uh, I guess I was that uh, obvious in my determination to... Uh, to get it, or he knew psychically that you know this was going to be uh, an important relationship for the ninja martial art. Uh, I'll never know. I'll never know. Yeah, very, very intriguing uh, with that story. Why? Why do you think ninjutsu has survived for so many thousand years? I think it's a couple thousand years. Well, um, that's a really good question. Um, Obviously, political situations uh, in Japan of the 1500s, the 1600s, you know, no longer exist. Uh, this isn't an underground uh, resistance movement. Um, but, you know, modern times, there are different, very different, but equally... Um, perplexing, difficult times, you know, um, people have so much more than they've ever had before, and yet it seems that, uh, you know, people aren't so happy. Um, they have uh, plenty of uh, free time, and uh, certainly the internet uh, has allow people to be in touch with each other and yet you know there's there's a lot of discord um, and so when we look at what ninjutsu really is it really is not a martial art as such um, that's just one aspect of it it really is about how to fit in how to adjust oneself so that we don't make a target out of ourselves. Um, people don't notice us um, as much as, say, you would notice an MMA champion or uh, you know somebody like that. Um, and so, as the ages go by, different challenges arise for human beings, and there's something that's timeless about this ninjutsu that uh, uh, causes it to uh, continue to change its form a little bit and be very, uh, be very valid uh, to study in the different, different times since World War II. What do, you think, what do you think it is about ninjutsu that makes it so different than other martial arts? Well, I can say pretty quickly, um, you know, a lot of, in the West, in the West anyway, a lot of martial arts are set up um, really on a sport model. Two people go into a ring and, you know, the better man wins. And this guy who comes in second place, you know, he vows to train harder and he'll get another chance. And uh, ninjutsu is so old but it goes back to an older time, uh, an older age, where you either won, there was no second place. 
you know, you were killed or, or maimed. And, uh, and it was used as a way to preserve uh, peace, uh, to encourage peace. The samurai warlords were, you know, vying with each other for power. And the ninja could subtly uh, persuade these people um, peace was 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 better, uh, and so to this day the reliance on rescuing other people um, and escaping just to defend uh, and then disappear makes ninjutsu a very different kind of a martial art than one where a 28-year-old uh, champion at the height of his, uh, you know, physical prowess uh, is temporarily the uh, guy that everybody celebrates. Yeah. Um, I mean, this might be a little bit of a controversial question. You can elect to not answer it if you want. But what was what happened between the Bujinkan system and the the Toshindo system. I mean, there was kind of a split where you decided to open the quest centers and move away from Hatsumi Sensei's teachings. What caused that? Well, um, what happened over the years, the 1970s until the early 2000s, I wrote a series of books um, that are still available to this day. And it made the ninjutsu quite famous. Uh, so there weren't 15 people studying for very long. Uh, everybody wanted to, <laughs> everybody wanted to be Stephen Hayes, you know. Hmm. Uh, they all wanted to be the, the guy. And, uh, well, you can't be the guy. I'm the guy. Uh, you have to create a new role. Um, but, People wanted to uh, have that old days uh, kind of a uh, situation. So that was going on. There were a lot of people that uh, you know, didn't particularly like me. You know, they would try to criticize the way I handled the early days of publicity and so forth. Um, they wanted to be important. Um, so that was one aspect. Another aspect was that Hatsumi Sensei was changing and he uh, was adjusting the art to fit what Japan was looking for, what Europeans were looking for. Um, it wasn't the same art that I had studied in the 1970s. It became kind of like a abstract art strange, funny kind of uh, situations. How would you defend against a guy with two six-foot bows? Uh, you know, things that would never happen in real life. Uh, they were just fun to explore. But I was not uh, ready to go there. I really believed in the way we had trained originally. So finally, there were some individuals that were so obsessed, you know, really, with me and my role. Um, they uh, wanted to uh, all cause a little trouble 
And uh, so I, fine, I felt I had gotten my start. I had uh, 30 years of training um, with Hatsumi Sensei. It was time to take the ninja martial art and really make it appropriate for uh, an American base. Hmm. Okay. Uh, fair enough. Uh, thank you so much for answering that. Um, what do you think is the most esoteric thing that you've learned about ninjutsu would be in all of your years of training? Well, the way I use the word esoteric, uh, it means something that is not obvious. Uh, it could even be explained to somebody and they're just not going to get it. Um, it's a truth that exists, but without certain experiences, nobody's going to understand that truth. So I would say the most esoteric thing that I've learned is uh, the reality behind why ninjutsu exists, the, the subtle way in which the training affects, changes a person. And again, I'm going back to my 1970s uh, training that way. Um, you can't stay in this martial art and just get stronger. You have to change as a human being uh, as you're learning these lessons. And the changes were not always easy. Changes were very heartbreaking sometimes. But those were necessary in order to develop a kind of uh, warrior wisdom at the end of the path. Hmm. Why do you feel like there are, I mean, you don't really see any ninjas in combat arenas such as the UFC and other fighting stages. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu uh, rule book is pages after pages of all of these rules and uh, EFC, the same thing. You can't attack the groin. You can't attack uh, hinge joints. Um, they're all, it's so-called no holds barred, but there is an extremely small window of applicability. And so athletes train uh, how to fit into that window and uh, overcome somebody else. And it's just not what we're interested in doing. I'm 66 years old. You know, what if I had to fight some uh, 28-year-old who has uh, 50 pounds of muscle on me? I still have to win by submitting myself to these rules and uh, uh, attitude. MMA is a is big business now. I mean, mega big business. And so they play two people against each other and, uh, you know, one steals the other guy's belt and they're about to get into a fight on the stage. And, you know, it's all planned big business. This is philosophically 
at great odds with real ninjutsu, where uh, what we're trying to do is confuse an opponent into not seeing us as an opponent. Can you can you get into some of the differences between Toshindo and the Bujinkan systems? Well, one of the things that is different is the way that people attack. Bujinkan uh, attacking method is kind of a standard from an old age where people had very short limbs and a long body, you know, genetically, the Japanese of 300 years ago, 400 years ago. And so a lot of, in fact, all of the attacks are initiated with a right foot moving forward and a right hand striking. Uh, so see if, you know, the listeners can picture that. Right foot and right hand going forward at the same time. Nobody fights like that today. Nobody fights like that. They project a left foot forward and throw a left hand or a right hand. And so that was the first thing that we changed. We made the attacks more like what an individual is going to experience in the real world of attacks today. The second thing that's very different is uh, in ancient Japan, Ninja would get into a fighting situation very rarely. And uh, it was almost always uh, an escape, uh, how to escape. So there was certain kind of spirit training, we could say, that was just unnecessary in those days. Um, everybody knew each day you go out, we've got the possibility of uh, a physical run-in. Um, today, a lot of people don't really know what violence looks like. So we have to teach them uh, what violence looks like, how it sounds. There are certain things that people say when they're trying to confuse a victim. And so there's a heavy reliance on verbal combat uh, as well as the more realistic attacking method. Uh, so that's just the beginning. That's the beginning of, wa of what Toshindo is, how it's different from the uh, Bujinkan method. You know, I saw, I saw you on the Discovery Channel and you were kind of uh, tasked to go in there and kind of take this guy's hat off or something, which I found very interesting. But um, how, what do you think the best way to diffuse violence would be or is? Oh, wow, that's a very broad question. Are we talking about violence among strangers, violence among angry people, violence among people who know each other? Uh, take quite a long time to answer that. So I think the best thing to say, you know, where we start in is trying to understand where this other person's coming from. You know, uh, somebody could be, they got a, a bad day, bad lifetime, you know, and they're just mouthy and saying stuff that they shouldn't and it's offensive and we need to put a stop to this. Well, 
is the law doesn't allow us to punish people for saying things. No matter what they say, if they're just talking, we can't stop them from talking. That's the way the law is. If a black belt in uh, ninja martial art, Toshindo, were to physically go over and stop somebody from talking, oh, gee, you know, you'd be arrested and uh, understanding where a person's coming from. So if somebody's, you know, shooting his mouth off, and, you know, I might say something, oh, man, not, you're the third person I've hacked off today. And I'm getting in everybody's way. Let me just get out of here. I get in the truck. I'm taking off. You get in your truck. You go your way. I'm apologize to you. I'm sorry. Whoa, that's kind of a strange way. A slightly humorous gives the guy a way out. He saved face. My friend knows. I just saved that guy's life. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, so that is, I would say, you know, the beginning understanding where this person's coming from and then fitting in, allowing ourselves to uh, fit into that exchange. Is there, is there a personal way that you deal with injuries? Cause I know that with training, there's usually a lot of kind of wear and tear injuries that come about from that. Well, there's not really that much. Um, we're much safer than basketball. <laughs> you know, we lose a lot more people to basketball leagues than we do uh, martial arts. I think because it's so dangerous that when people are training, they're totally aware of how far to take something, you know, for themselves, for their uh, training partner. You know, whereas with basketball or uh, skateboarding or something else, you know, they might be injury uh prone, a person has another challenge. Oh, I'm going to make this ramp. I'm going to uh, uh, dunk this basket. Things that you know, distract away from how dangerous uh, um, the activity is, I guess. We really don't have that many uh, injuries in our training. So how do you think this, this training, Toshindo, can improve your everyday life? Well, we start with uh, the most scary possibility known to human being, and that is, what if I weren't alive? You know, what if this person had their way and I'm gone? And there are all kinds of considerations, you know. Uh, maybe this person is just too big. Uh, how do I fit in there? Maybe it's not worth fighting. How do I get myself away and out of there without making a target for myself? Maybe the talker is not the problem. The problem is his cousin over there who's real quiet, who's just going to sneak up behind you and hit you over the head. It demands absolute, uh, complete attention and uh, I think that in our busy times, you know, busy lives, you know, that feels good. It feels zen-like, you know, many is the time. We'll be training along and we'll say, okay, well, we're done for the night. And 
people do a double take. They look at the clock. They can't believe that 45 minutes has gone by. They're that rapidly involved in uh, physical training, the mental training, uh, trying to get better, letting go of bad habits, uh, trying to pick up a new good habit. I think that's really uh, the key to you know how this works, um, why it works, why people continue to train for years and years. What what can you say? I know you've been training for many years, but what can you say has been the most difficult lesson that you've had to learn through your training? Well, physically, when I started back in the 1970s, you know, I was in my 20s. I was very used to uh, a, a kind of aggressive style of movement, charging forward and knocking limbs out of the way and hitting. And uh, that's just totally the opposite of the ninja way of winning. We engage the limbs. Uh, we, we let the person think they're winning for a half a second. We fit in. And that took me a lot of years. Um, I would get it. And then under a test or whatever, I would, uh, you know, be thrown a loop and oh, go back to the old way, uh, just standing there trying to slug my way out. And these guys had become phantoms. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so I think that was probably the, the toughest thing, you know, and it was good that I had the teacher that I had. Hatsumi Sensei is a very different person for me, very different person. And that's good. Um, if you're studying with a person who's exactly like you, it'll just reinforce your bad habits. Um, so I had to learn new ways of of doing things, and uh, sometimes I wondered if he was kidding me. You know, this can't be real. But I'll just go along with it, and sure enough, it turned out, uh, you know, that's one of the aspects of growth that uh, I experienced in there. Okay, well, I mean, you're you're credited with being a Buddhist, and it seems like serendipity is a major fact. I mean, you you have to be the most lucky person in the universe just because you were a security advisor for the Dalai Lama. How, how did that occur? How did that happen? <laughs> well, I had uh, visited with the Dalai Lama in 1986 when I was in India. And uh, just, just, as you say, very lucky, uh, very lucky. He had a brother who lived just a few hours away from me back in the U.S. He was the first one to escape Tibet in 1951. And uh, he had uh, worked as a professor at Indiana University. So I went over to see his brother and, uh, you know, uh, find out a few more things from him. And that very, so 86, 87, the Dalai Lama came to Indiana to see his brother, uh, brought all these monks with him. And uh, so I got to see him again there. And he remembered me. It was a very amazing uh, memory that he has. He remembered me. And uh, then uh, 88, I got to see him again. 89, I was in Los Angeles 
at a conference where he was, and uh, they announced that he had won the Nobel Peace Prize. And immediately, the sleepy little California coastal campus just went wild. Reporters and people showing up, people who didn't even, you know, think about the Dalai Lama, take him seriously, suddenly were uh, pouring in. And by then, I had gotten to know the, the Dalai Lama's family and gotten to know his political staff. And uh, so I jumped in and helped them with some security. <laughs> security at this little sleepy California university was, you know, some old old duffer with a time key walking around, uh, you know, uh, you know, they had no security at all, really. And uh, so after that, he was coming to Ohio and the uh, staff had uh, by then gotten to know who I was and asked if I would help with the Ohio visit. And then it just went on and on from there. Whenever he would visit the U.S. and be in the Midwest, I would uh, organize a team. That lasted until, oh, 1999. And that's when the federal government got involved. We just, we couldn't keep doing this with, you know, volunteer work and uh, finally talk the federal government into supplying State Department dignitary uh, protection team. And so like 70 guys would show up and three bomb sniffing dogs and, you know, intelligence briefings every morning. Uh, and at that point, I can, I mean, they were only protecting the Dalai Lama. And I mean, there were a lot of people at the events that, you know, needed security. And uh, so I continued as a liaison officer, kind of working with the State Department and uh, even uh, played the role of uh, MC a couple of times to uh, introduce him to the uh, to the crowd as the years went by. You know, I'm too old to be a bodyguard now. They have guys one-third my age, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Very, very interesting, Mr. Hayes. I, I do really appreciate your time, and you have to be one of the most interesting people that I've gotten a chance to read about and hear about. Is there is there a place that, pe that people can find out more about your work? Yeah. The best place probably is the web, Stephen K. Hayes. You just write that out like one giant word, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-H-A-Y-E-S, stephenkhayes.com. And uh, that gives them uh, a way to find out about my training school here in Ohio, find out about our, uh, we have a massive library of techniques that are online now. People can subscribe and uh, basic lessons to intermediate lessons to some pretty exotic uh, techniques, uh, some of the weapons, uh, some of the psychic, you could call it psychic type of uh, work that we do, um, uh, all available online. Uh, so stephenkhayes.com would be uh, the best place to go just to uh, check it out. Perfect. We will make sure that we 
link that in the comments section below. Mr. Hayes, thank you so much for being here. Uh, this is The Human Experience. My name is Xavier. We're going to get out of here. Thank you so much for listening.